This episode is brought to you by Greg Morris Cards, one of the largest sports card sellers on the planet. Greg sells over 80,000 vintage and modern cards every month, including basketball, football, baseball, hockey, all sports really, and even some non-sports cards too. On top of that, every raw card receives the same hand grading that collectors have put their trust in for over 15 years. What are you waiting for? Head on over to gregmorriscards.com auctions and check it out for yourself. What's up, everyone? This is episode 189 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. And as you can see by the title, this week's episode features the 12th installment of the listener mailbag. I always have a lot of fun with those, and this time was no exception. That is, of course, today's main segment. But I want to start today off with the actual mail because uh, I know it's been a while since I've done that on this show, and people have indicated to me that they really enjoy that. So I'm just going to talk about two cards real quick today. And the first one is a duplicate for me, believe it or not. It was a 1999-2000 SPX Radiance Parallel of Pacers legend Jeff Foster, and a lot of other rookies from that year have a base card in the set that's autographed. Some of those are numbered to 500. I know Ron Artest is numbered to 2,500. Well, Jeff Foster doesn't have the autographed version, though, so his base card is numbered to 3,500, and there's only two parallels to that card. The Radiance, which is numbered to 100, and the Spectrum, which is a one-of-one. So, like I said, this is my second copy of the Radiance, I acquired the first one for about $5 shipped. This one cost me a little more than six times that amount. And it's certainly not normal for me to pay 6x for a duplicate. However, this one was numbered 10 out of 100, which was Jeff Foster's jersey number. You know, truth be told, he doesn't have a lot of real nice cards. I know some people think jersey number premiums are goofy, but you know when there aren't too many cards to chase to begin with, you look for ways to try and take that collection to the next level. And I think chasing parallels that feature the jersey number is a good way to make that happen. Uh, I don't think I posted that one yet on my social media, but I'll try and get it up there before the week is over. Um, I also need to get card number two up, although you can see both of these on YouTube already if you haven't checked that out. I do a lot of my mail day videos there. But the second card I received was a 2008-2009 Topps Hardwood RPA Redwood Parallel of Roy Hibbert, numbered 5 out of 5. Notice that Panini uses um, Emerald for a lot of their stuff, numbered to 5. And for a while there, Tops seemed to go with Red in certain years. I know in some of their modern products for wrestling and some other things, I think the Red Parallels are still numbered out of 5. But there are only 12 players in this set list total And this is not an easy card to track down by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I wasn't the one that tracked it down. So I got a message one day from a listener named Roland. I think he spotted the card on an overseas marketplace. It's one I never would have seen. And then not only did he find the card, but he wanted to purchase it for me. 
And we exchanged some messages back and forth, and he, he insisted, no, I want to purchase this for you as a gift. I really appreciate your content. So that one showed up in my mailbox this week. It was a very kind gesture from Roland. He didn't have to do that, but he did. And um, I just wanted to say once again, even though I've thanked him privately, I appreciate that quite a bit. Okay, so this is normally the part of the show where I'd play this week's installment of Collector Classifieds. I had a couple people that said they were interested, and then I never got anything from them. And I know, you know, I'm not blaming them. I'm not griping or complaining. I know that, you know, everyone's busy. Life gets in the way. It is what it is. So instead of scrapping the segment entirely, though, I want to try something different. I want you to take a moment here, and I want you to think about someone whose post on Instagram you appreciate. Maybe it's someone you haven't chatted with in a long time, or maybe it's someone you haven't chatted with at all and you just like what they do, take a moment to reach out to that person. It can be now, maybe you pause it, it can be after the show, whenever. Reach out to that person, introduce yourself if you have to, let them know that you appreciate them and their content, and then in the spirit of Collector Classifieds, ask them to name a card or two that they're looking for. Um, and, and don't stop there. Spread the word in your stories. You know, Let some of your friends know. Um, do an extra search here every now and then, and let's see if we can't help some people out. All right, before I move into today's mailbag, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www waxmuseumpodcast.com. Click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hi, this is Alan Siegel, the designer of the NBA logo, and now you're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, I think I've got a little over 20 questions today. And I weeded a couple out, mainly because it seems like I've answered them before. Otherwise, I tried to get everything in here. So let's go ahead and jump right in. The first question comes from Hugo, who goes by Nebrolian PC. Uh, you heard him on last week's installment of Collector Classifieds. He's still looking for that Tony Parker Gold status parallel, by the way. But he asked, what is the first memory you associate with sports cards? Um, I don't think I've given this before. I know I've talked about when I started collecting. And my introduction to the NBA and college basketball in general was around 1995. Um, I remember my dad watching it prior to that, but for whatever reason, that's when I really got into it. And I think a lot of it had to do with Reggie Miller just killing the Knicks around that time. As far as cards go, here's what I can remember. A friend at school gave me a 1994-95 Fleer Ultra Double Trouble insert of Scottie Pippen, and I showed it to my mom. I, you know, I someone gave something to me, I wanted to show it off, right? I didn't have Instagram back then. Uh, now, she was worried that this other kid's mom wouldn't like him giving his cards away. So eventually, I think I was allowed to keep it. I think I still have it, actually, in a box. And uh, this probably is, is what inspired mom to let me pick out a pack at the store on my own. And I don't know, you know, I don't remember all of the exact details, but I remember early on that I grabbed a 95-96 tops pack and I pulled a Dale Davis base card. And yeah, there was a Jordan Steele's leader in there too, but that didn't mean much to me. 
And I suppose from there, the rest was history. With the um, exception of a short hiatus from 2000 to early 2003, cards have been a pretty regular part of my life since then. Uh, One more question from Hugo, who wrote, You mentioned gifting a few cards to your brother-in-law. Have any of your friends or coworkers gotten into sport cards after talking to you? Well, I had one or two co-workers at my last school that started getting back into cards a little bit when I talked to them about it. And keep in mind, that was at the height of the boom, so uh, there was probably some influence from some other places as well. Uh, As for my current school, though, I've only been there since June, and and I don't even think anyone knows that I collect at this point. And and obviously, I'm I'm not ashamed of it. I mean, I I, I host a basketball card podcast, so I own up to that. Uh, with no regrets, but uh, it just hasn't come up yet. I guess business is business, and we haven't talked about it. All right, um, I've got a question from the Bouvier who asked, if you could attend any one sporting event from history, what game or event would it be and why? I mentioned Reggie Miller earlier today. He's going to get a lot of attention today because it would probably have to be Pacers-Bulls Game 4 of the 98 Eastern Conference Finals. And, you know, as much as I'd love to see Wilt versus Russell or some other, you know, huge historical matchup, I'd be watching that as a neutral observer. And, um, you know, I don't think the people there in the moment would appreciate it so much either, or, and not as much as we do in a historical context. So I want something that in the moment I think people appreciated. And that's this game four where Reggie came off of a screen He shoved Jordan and he hit this game winner over him. Um, And that Pacers team, by the way, was the only team to take Jordan to seven games. Now, there are other Reggie moments that I'd love to see, primarily against the Knicks in Madison Square Garden. But I went with this one for a couple reasons. Number one, I never saw Jordan play in person. I mean, I saw him play on TV quite a bit. Um, Thankfully, I'd I'd gotten in. Like I said, I got in in 95, so there was enough to where I could see some Jordan still. Um, but I've never seen him play in person, so it would fill that void. And then also there's something about being able to cheer for your team in a big moment at home with all of the other fans as a home crowd, I should say, not at your actual house as a home crowd. And I think I took that for granted until I actually moved away from Indiana because I've attended road games since like 2003. And when your team wins, it's not the same energy in the same environment. And I really, really miss that. So much so, I think the next time the Pacers make it deep into the playoffs, I need to make it a point to get back to a game in Indianapolis. So, to answer the question though, 1998 Eastern Conference Finals, Game 4. Okay, next question comes from Detroit Tackett, who asks, where do you see the future of grading? He said, for him, it's a small part of collecting. He also said, I think there's a place for it, but the massive focus on grading everything is silly to me. Collect the card, not the grades, is screamed often. If that's the case, one touch it. All right, so um, I'm not big on grading myself, but I think it makes the most sense when you're buying and selling high-end stuff or cards that are very condition-sensitive like some vintage. And, um, you know, so there is some utility to grading. I don't want to knock that. I know there's an argument that slabs protect a card. You know, well, top loaders and one-touches do as well, but some people like the continuity of slabs. I'm fine with all of that. With that being said, I think a lot of newer people are still under the impression that grading every card is the norm, even if it's for your PC. Well, then we got flooded with so many slabs that some of the graded stuff isn't worth the cost of the process itself, 
And I think the huge backlog that we had here and the subsequent avalanche of slabs that are coming back will help to shift this mindset a little. But at the same time, those costs are getting low. So we're going to see another cycle of this, probably not as bad as the last time, but we will see it because it is getting cheaper and cheaper to grade once again. Um, I think people, though, are going to be a little more selective with what they send in. But yes, I echo some of your sentiments here. Not everything has to be graded. Uh, in fact, you you know, if you've seen my collection, you know a lot of it is not. Most of it is not. All right, Tough Times Cards ask, what's your favorite Pacers jersey style they have worn? On the other end, what's the worst style they have worn? Um, all right, so my favorite one would have to be one that, that didn't get a lot of action, but that's the 2020-2021 City Edition jerseys. And um, it's a shame that I like that one so much because they change every year and they're probably never going to wear them again. And the reason I like them so much is because they combine the royal blue of the ABA Pacers, the pinstripes of the Reggie Miller era, and some of the lettering from later years, and they look great. So it's kind of a, you know, it narrates the history of the franchise in that one jersey. And I've talked about it a little before, but Panini used one of those jerseys for a TJ Warren flawless jumbo patch. Not only that, they pictured him wearing the same style jersey on the card. You know, that always bothers me a little when the relic piece is, is different than the jersey depicted on the card. Uh, but anyway, I, I've talked about that card before. I won't go on and on. As for Pacers uniforms, I didn't like. Basically, every jersey they wore from 1981 to 1989, which was really just two different designs. Uh, the jerseys in the 80s sucked for the Pacers, and guess what? The Pacers did too, so I guess that was fitting. Uh, and guess what? Here we are in 2022, and the Pacers suck again, which segues into the next question from Jason, a.k.a. Small Town Cards, who asks, How does tanking affect how you collect for your team PC? Well, really, it's hard to know for sure how much it's affected because I think I would still be buying a lot of stuff of this losing team if Panini was still regularly producing quality pieces because I'm narrating the history of this team. So I still want uh, the Prism Golds, which those do exist. I want the Jumbo Laundry Tags. I want the Jumbo Patches. Uh, a lot of the current roster, though, has relics from another team or relics that were never worn, and I'm not going to purchase those. So there are a number of factors that have influenced what I buy or what I don't buy right now. The losing, though, not so much. Believe it or not, I'll still... I mean, I have plenty of Jeremy Lamb peril, uh, you know, cards in my collection. I have plenty of uh, just random guys. Aaron Holiday, Justin Holiday. So I'm going to buy... Winner, loser, you know, scrub, star. I'm going to buy them if they're a pacer. All right. The Bouvier, another question from him. He said, what is one Reggie Miller card you don't have that you want the most? Wow. Um, well, there are a lot of nice Reggie Miller cards out there I don't have. So there's, there's a lot to choose from with this question. I know a lot of people would probably choose a PMG green or something like that, but it's the relic cards that have always appealed to me. And I want it to be from his playing days or in that vicinity at least. So I would probably choose a 2005-2006 Topps Big Game in the Name Letter Patch card, but I want the letter M specifically. And I know it's been pulled because I saved a picture of it on my computer years ago and I still have it. I have no clue where it's at now. It's probably locked up in some big Reggie PC, but if I could choose any one Reggie card, I think that would be the one. All right, next question comes from 727 Sports Cards Greg. 
uh, who's a, a friend of mine here who's local. He said, do you look at the current downturn as advantageous as a collector, even though it may impact you as a part-time dealer? And then he also added, go Pistons. We're going to forget about that last part. Although, please, Pistons, beat the Pacers this year um, as many games as they play. But uh, to answer your question, though, I think overall the downturn is advantageous, especially for some of the more liquid stuff. And during the pandemic, I kind of gained a new appreciation for some of that liquid stuff, believe it or not. You'd think it's the other way around. People are now deciding that they don't want it. But when it comes to iconic cards and iconic rookies, when that stuff shot up in price, I realized, you know, I'd always taken it for granted. I should have grabbed all this stuff years ago. Um, You know, for instance, he mentioned the Pistons. I don't have an 86 Fleer Isaiah rookie. And now part of it's because I'm being picky. I want a copy that's got good centering from left to right. So it's not just a matter of buying a beat up copy, but uh, luckily prices on those are coming back down to earth because it seems like there's millions of them out there. Uh, so I can be picky and, and wait until I find one that's in my price range. Now, some of the other stuff though, some of the rare pacer stuff I want is just as expensive, but that's mainly because there's just such a limited supply or maybe there are more buyers that have come onto the market. But as far as it affecting me as a part-time dealer, I'm not really setting up much at shows anymore. I think I'm going to try and do a show, a small show, maybe once every three months. And that allows me to slowly accumulate inventory that I think will maintain its value and won't be as affected by the, the current downturn that you referenced. Um, but it is still affecting me though, because I'm, I'm, I'm taking the slow build approach when it comes to inventory and a lot of my inventory came from buying lots. And that's tricky now because during the boom, if I found you know a binder that had, let's say I find a binder for 30 bucks, but it's got a Tim Duncan Topps rookie in there. Well, that was a $20 card then, whereas now they're under five. So you know I could make 60% of my money back instantly with that one card, whereas now I'm making you know just 25% of it back. So with my lots, unless I find something huge, they just don't have the same value that they did during the pandemic. That was a great time for buying lots. Um, overall, though, I would say with this downturn, I am happy that things have settled down a little. Um, it just wasn't healthy for the hobby to keep that same pace long term. Next question comes from Sky underscore BTC, who asks, what is the card that most collectors would consider the best card that got left out of your top 50. Um, and, and by the way, if you haven't seen that yet, I've been posting those videos on Instagram one at a time and then also on YouTube in batches of five. I was kind of thinking today that list was a lot of fun to put together. Uh, I'm kind of going to miss it when it's over, but uh, I still have plenty of it to go. I think I've still got a good 30 cards or so to go. So anyway, he's asking, what's one card that a lot of people thought I would have on there that I left off? You know, there were a couple big Pacers cards that didn't make the list, including my Granger Exquisite Gold RPA, my Jeff Foster Rookie Credentials. That one probably should made it. Maybe it will in a future list. But as far as big cards that people know, I'd say my Bird Magic Rookie. And, and trust me, I thought long and hard about that one. It's an important card. It narrates a critical time in NBA history. I wanted it. I traded for it. You know, I sought it out, but you know what? There's just a lot of other cards that I like more. So it's not an indictment on that card. It just doesn't make my top 50. And speaking of my top 50, uh, next question. Well, after asking about my non-existent fantasy football team, 
Chad from Pack to the Future podcast asked, did ranking your top 50 cards lead you to reconsider your PC pyramid? You know, really, I think it did more to solidify the pyramid that I had already established. I realized that pretty much all the cards on my list fit on there at some level. It did, however, get me kind of anxious to acquire another card or two that I think would make that list uh, and soon. And that got me even, I, I started reaching out to some some leads that were maybe from a year or two ago. Uh, some of them have already left me on read, uh, which is, you know, kind of crushing, but it is what it is. I'm not going to press that. But anyway, yeah, it, it's kind of, it, it hasn't caused me to reconsider anything so much as it has, it's kind of re-energized my search for cards that are going to jump onto that list. And they're not easy to find at this point. So it's really a matter of being patient setting aside the funds, and trying hard not to squander that money on a bunch of unrelated stuff. But I am also a believer that if you are proactive and you hunt that stuff out, um, you will get some leads that you wouldn't otherwise have gotten. It's not all about stuff just showing up on eBay. Okay, next question comes from Jarrett. Celtic Super Collector has been on the show a couple times. He asked, when you do submissions on ComC, how do you pack up your cards to mail them safely? He said, I heard, and I could be wrong, that if you send cards in cases, ComC charges you, an uncase, charges you to uncase the cards. Well, I would, uh, I would say, first off, I'm going to refer everyone to the ComC blog and the ComC Frequently Asked Questions, um, because I, I, you know, even though they do sponsor the show, I don't speak for them necessarily, but I will give you my personal experiences here. It really depends on your cases. Um, you know, if you're sending at the cheapest level, if you top load them, or send them in mags, you're going to get charged. If you send them in penny sleeves, you're fine. And I never really send huge batches. I might send 50 or 100 cards at a time, but I like to carefully, um, I actually package a lot of them raw, which is a little nerve-wracking, I'll, I'll admit, but I package them raw in one of those slider boxes, and sometimes I have to use two of them. Uh, but I make sure it's packed tight because you don't want them bouncing around everywhere. So I'll put paper towel in there or packing peanuts or something. Um, I've also sent cards in a 400 count box with penny sleeves, which I always, once again, feel a little uneasy about, but I've never had any problems so far. Regardless, if you're doing the small slider boxes or the count boxes, you need to put those inside of another box before you ship and then insulate that around the perimeter and the top and the bottom with bubble wrap or newspaper, something to protect it. And then if you've got enough big uh, a big enough uh, submission, you want to go with the priority flat rate just to save yourself the money, get the most bang for your buck, or wait until you can submit in person. Uh, I did that in Dallas for the first time this summer, and I was very happy with how that process all played out. Okay, so I mentioned there that you know ComC is a sponsor. Jarrett brought him up, so I might as well take this point in the show to remind you here that uh, ComC.com is your home for buying, selling, and flipping all types of trading cards. Their consignment marketplace is home to over 28 million cards across all sports, genres, and eras. With a ComC.com account, you can purchase cards from different sellers over time and ship them home together later, or immediately reprice them for sale in the ComC marketplace. For more info, you can check them out on social media under the handle at CheckoutMyCards. All right, moving on. Green underscore Stiller ask, do you have a binder full of the 90s Hoops Lakers Taco Bell set, the 2012 Hoops Taco Bell set, or every copy of the 1998 Shaq 
Taco Bell lenticular card you've ever found in a dollar bin. You know what's funny? I really don't see those cards at shows, and they're not super valuable. That sounds like something that would make its way into one of those boxes. And because of that, I've always held off on buying them online, so I, I thought I'd find them. Now, in addition to that, I, I was wondering about you know the, the 2012 hoop set. I remember it. I remember it being at Taco Bell. Um, for those of you that aren't familiar with that, it, it looks very similar to the actual 2012 hoop set, except the corners are rounded, and then some of the rookies have different pictures. A few veteran players have different pictures as well. I think some of the guys that were traded or signed with new teams. Um, but otherwise, it's a very similar looking set. So I was thinking to myself, you know, I was at Taco Bell in 2012. Why didn't I ever rip any of those packs? And I know I was consuming plenty of Taco Bell at that time because I, I was finishing up my master's. But I realized, well, that's because I, you know, I was also living with four or five other people. I was pinching pennies on everything. So my Taco Bell orders at that time usually consisted of two Beefy Fritos burritos, which totaled out to $2.14 each trip, which I could make several of those trips a week. And uh, now I have no actual hoops cards to show for it. Although I know I used some of that money to hoard 2013 Immaculate Mark Jackson patches. So um, I guess that's the trade-off there. There was a silver lining after all. Speaking of Taco Bell, next question. Frugal Cards ask a very important question. He said, you're approaching 200 episodes. Have you been paid in burritos yet? No, I haven't. Not officially. Although I, I have to thank a couple guys who've sent me Taco Bell gift cards over these last few years. Um, someone also sent me a Taco Bell rookie card from a trivia game. And then... Um, Lakers Forum Gold even sent me one of those plush chihuahuas from the 90s, which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, still talks and everything, but nothing from Taco Bell themselves. So to the CEO of Yum, if you're listening, number one, I love your product. I consume it too much. Call me. All right, Zach's Vintage Cards wrote, patch swaps have been a hot topic lately. Why would someone swap a patch? And then what do they do with the original? Well, the first part I can answer for you pretty definitively, it, because it's pretty simple here, multicolor pieces command a significant premium, or at least they did at one point. Now, it's funny because we've seen so many swapped that now there are some specific cards, like I'm thinking of um, the Kevin Durant RPA, where the trim pieces command a premium because people feel more comfortable buying them. Now, I have no clue what people do with the old patches after the fact. I can't speak for all card doctors. Um, I interviewed a collector that altered a Curry RPA at one point, and he indicated that me that he still had the old swatch at the house. I know there's also a Donovan Mitchell where someone swapped the patch and then swapped the old one back in after it got called out, although he put it in upside down. Um, so apparently that person kept it as well. I don't know if that's the norm, though, because all this stuff kind of happens behind closed doors. Another patch question then comes from Chatri, who you heard from last week, um, also known as Wade underscore Zoe. He said, what are three jersey designs, past or present, that have never been cut up for trading cards that you think would create the best looking patches? And you know what? Everything that I can think of has been used so far. And uh, now keep in mind, these are just ones that I think would make nice patch sets. Uh, there are some real busy jerseys out there that 
you know, some camo ones or like the Mavs gray silver jerseys or gray jerseys or whatever those were in the 2000s. Um, that would be interesting, but I don't think they would make real good looking cards. Uh, there is one example I can think of that's recently, that was Atlanta City Edition uniforms from last year. They were like a bright yellow, or I guess in Jersey language, that would be gold. And there was a big red hawk on the front and the word Atlanta with black letters and a red outline. I think those would look pretty cool. You ask for three though, and I really can't think of two more, which is a little disappointing because I'd like to think patches are my specialty. Next up, uh, 77 NCAA champs ask, will G League cards be a permanent fixture in the NBA hobby scene? And then do you want to see this happen? Um, my, the, I'll answer the second part here first. Do I want to see it happen? Absolutely. Uh, will they be a permanent fixture? My guess is no. And, uh, you know, speaking of that, and maybe what, what prompted that is that there is a new G League box set that just, um, that was announced. And this whole set is a little puzzling to me. I was talking to a friend about this the other day, and he suggested that, you know, maybe the league has requested that they make it. Otherwise, you know what, like they're way behind on everything else. They're having troubles getting stuff printed. Why are we throwing a G League player in the mix or a G League set in the mix, I should say. And otherwise, you know, everyone of significance has already had cards elsewhere. I know some people might want a, a licensed Scoot Henderson card. I know he's been in Leaf stuff, but they might want the G League version. But is he really going to be enough to carry this set? And it's only being distributed as a box set. So aside from the bonus autos, which aren't very good, by the way, uh, aside from the bonus autos, there's no element of surprise. There's no real pack opening. And then the cards being printed on uh, cards are being printed on 18 point cardstock, which just means it's cheap. I think the quality, you know, I'm imagining 18 point to be like Panini Complete or the, or the Panini Instant, and and then on top of that, they're not adding any unique relics or inserts to differentiate it from anything else. You know, this would be a great opportunity for them to teach people a little about the history of the G League or the D League or even before that some of the leagues that kind of fed into that. Anyway, if you can't tell, I think this set's going to be a big flop. And then they're going to point to this anytime someone suggests another G League set in the next 10 years. They'll say, yeah, well, remember we tried that in 2022. The roster wasn't strong enough to move the product. And while that could be partially true, the roster will always be an obstacle. But Panini's doing themselves zero favors on the creative side. Um, I mentioned Scoot Henderson there. I, I should come back to that. While I don't think he's enough enough to propel a horribly constructed G League product, you know, and quite frankly, what player could save that product? But while I don't think Scoot is enough, I watched a little of his two televised games last week, and I was really impressed. The main draw in those two games was um, Scoot Henderson and Victor Wimbanyama, of course. And Instagram Dr. Crosscuts asked for my thoughts on Victor. You know what? I'm trying hard not to overreact. I don't think his hype exceeds LeBron's yet, which, you know, a lot of people have been debating that. I don't think it does, and and really it doesn't matter. He's got a pretty unique skill set that we haven't quite seen before. I know some other people have said, well, yeah, you know, yes, we have. We've seen it with Porzingis. I think he has a little more in his arsenal at 18 than Chris Dops did. You know, he can handle the ball and move like a guard. He can play some in the post. He can block shots. He can shoot a 28-footer. Uh, that's not to say he does all that stuff perfectly, but NBA teams are salivating as at the potential as they should. 
I'm definitely concerned about the body type though. And it's just really hard for someone that big to not run into major health issues somewhere down the line. Now, I've read that he's working with coaches and specialists to learn the correct way to fall. So his team and his coaches are already addressing some of the things that might hinder him in the future. Regardless, I think any team that has the opportunity to take a chance on him absolutely should. And one of those teams is the Pacers. It's already pretty clear to me that they're going to be dropping games left and right this year, and I'm fine with that. Last year was tough, and as much as I like Benedict Matherin so far, he is not an adequate payoff for the garbage I had to watch last season. So I would love to have a shot at Victor, trying not to get my hopes up too much, but I have thought about it quite a bit already. And like I said, you gotta take a chance on this guy if you can. On top of that, I've mentioned Scoot Henderson a couple times already. He's not a bad consolation prize if the Victor thing doesn't work out. Okay, next question. PC305 asks, Do you know if LeBron and MJ will be included in basketball products when Fanatics takes over? Well, the way things are structured right now, as long as LeBron's still in the league, he'll be in Fanatics stuff. Just no autographs. Jordan, however, is still an Upper Deck exclusive, and I wouldn't count on that changing any time soon. Indie Lions 23 asks, if Fanatics buys Panini, how would you suggest that they differentiate Topps Chrome and Prism? All right, brace yourself. This is probably not going to be a popular answer, and I don't know if it's the best solution, but right now it's the best bad idea I've got. But I would keep Panini Prism and replace Optic with Topps Chrome. Now hear me out. There are way, way, way too many Chromium products right now. And if you add Tops into the mix, you have to figure they're going to produce Tops Chrome and Tops Finest at bare minimum. I figure we would see some others as well. And even though Prism came first out of Prism and Optic, I've always felt like Optic was a better substitute for Tops Chrome. It has a more traditional, um, you know, just basic design to it. So release Prism at the start of the year with all the cropped backgrounds and then release Topps Chrome at the end of the season with updated teams and updated game photos from the first half. Like I said, probably not popular, but it's a solution nonetheless. And, and you know, as far as I'm concerned, we could keep Prism and Optic, Topps Chrome and Topps Finest and get rid of the rest. I know that's still four Chromium products, but that's quite a bit less than we would have with Panini. It seems like they've got more than that right now. So that would mean no Mosaic, no Pristine, no Contenders Optic, and so on and so on. It's just way too much, and the printers can't keep up with it anyway. All right, last question. More Fanatics fantasy booking here. Mitten State Collector wrote, What relic or memorabilia item associated with basketball would you most like to see incorporated into a card set from Fanatics. So I tried to think outside of the box here. We've got a lot of jerseys and shoes, and we've got net pieces and all sorts of things from Panini and all the other companies that came before. I think I've talked about this before, but it's time for Coach Relics. We've seen a few football coaches with Relic cards in Panini sets. I know Jimmy Johnson and some of the older guys before that. Bill Parcells too, some of the guys before that. But what about the basketball guys? I know the dress code has changed a little since COVID, but they probably wore what? At least 20 suits a year, right? Or different ties, maybe even more than that when you count the ties. 
wouldn't you rather have a jumbo immaculate red hourback coach relic with like um, an entire button from a sport coat instead of a Mason Plumley patch piece? You know, and how much would that hourback relic cost the card companies? I found an old SCP auction from 2011, and I know prices have jumped since then, but one of his tweed sport coats sold for $425. Um, and then they had a picture of him wearing the coat. Um, another item they had, just while I was looking through it, was the whole Red Auerbach collection. They had his cigar carrying case, which sold for $650. Those would be cool things to have. They're, you know, they're, When you think of Red Auerbach, you think of the cigar, right? You can't put a cigar in a card, but you could put the carrying case. So there's plenty of that stuff out there still for Auerbach. It's just a matter of finding it. And while we're at it, how about some ref relics? Take a guy like Dick Bavetta, who's in the Hall of Fame. In 2016, SCP sold one of his jerseys, his ref jerseys from the 80s, for $360. That's it, $360. And it had the giant screen-printed NBA Logoman emblem on the left chest. He had his number on the back. You know how cool it would be to get something like that in a card? Uh, or how about we cut one of Joey Crawford's old whistles in half? You know, they have the thick shoe cards. Cut the whistle in half, put half of it in one card, half of it in the other, number to two. The possibilities here are endless. It just takes a little bit of imagination and some effort. And I really hope Fanatics is willing to bring that to the table because we desperately need it right now. All right, well, there you have it. I have to be honest here. I think I enjoyed that one more than the last couple I've done. Uh, some of the questions here let me share some about my collection some really made me think. And then overall, it was just a lot of fun. So maybe there was something I mentioned in a response today that resonated with you. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Wax Museum Podcast. I'm also on Twitter under at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.